Thank you so much. Can you hear me in the back? Is this working? You feel okay. All right. Are sunscreens safe? That's kind of a surprising question. But how many of you have heard of the Environmental Working Group? Have you read? Pretty many. They're kind of a, a, a advocacy group based in Washington who every year comes up with some outrageous claim. And this year's claim is that sunscreens are dangerous. So let's kind of go over what, uh, what we think about it. Um, by way of disclosure, I'm a consultant for L'Oreal. They make La Roche-Posay and sunscreens, so um, that's a potential conflict of interest. Um, so sunblocks and sunscreens are the principal, really the principal strategy that we all employ to lower skin cancer rates. So what's our basic message? We basically recommend that all people wear sunscreens at all times, which is a little silly if you think about it. How many of you tell black people to wear sunscreens? You know, really? You see a lot of basal cell in black people? You know, maybe with melasma, if they have melasma or something, but, but it's too confusing of a message to try and, and you know, tell people to decide, well, you should wear sunscreen or you should not wear sunscreen. So we basically just tell everybody, wear sunscreen all the time because it's a great idea. Is, is that true? Is sunscreen a great idea? Well, sunscreens and sunblocks have been shown in humans to reduce the formation of AKs. That's good enough just by itself, right there. Lower incidence of actinic keratosis, which I know you just heard about. Um, unequivocally true with both sunscreens and sunblocks. By the way, do you know the difference between a sunscreen and a sunblock? Anybody feeling brave? Sunscreens absorb ultraviolet light and then radiate it back into the environment as heat. Sunblocks reflect the light directly. They're like little mirrors. So sunblocks are titanium and zinc. That's why they're white, because they're reflecting light back at you. And sunscreens absorb, and again, they give off heat. So at any rate, sunscreens and sunblocks have been shown in humans to reduce the formation of AKs. That's good enough for me. Also, solar elastosis, which is a measure of photo damage and photoaging. UV-induced immunosuppression and many photosensitivity diseases. So sunscreens block polymorphous light eruption, for example. Um, in animals, where we can study these sort of things, um, sunscreens lower the incidence of squamous cell carcinoma. That's a fact. So these are all really very compelling reasons that you should be advising your patients to wear sunscreens and sunblocks. While the epidemiology of melanoma and sunscreen use has been mixed over the years, in other words, if you do a study where you, and imagine how hard this study would be to do. You take someone who's 50 years old with melanoma and then you ask them to remember what they did with sunscreens when they were 12 years old. You know, that's a hard study to do. Um, and many have been done over the years. And it's been mixed results. Some studies show that people who wear sunscreens get more melanoma, and some studies show people who wear sunscreens get less melanoma. Actually, you wouldn't be entirely surprised to hear that people who wear sunscreen get more melanoma. And the reason you wouldn't be entirely surprised is because the people who need to wear sunscreens are the ones who wear sunscreens. In other words, fair-skinned, sun-sensitive people, that's who gets melanoma, and that's who uses sunscreen. So we wouldn't be surprised if those two things move together. But I want to let you know that the most recent studies suggest that sunscreens help prevent melanoma that by telling your patients to use sunscreen, they'll get less melanoma. And that comes specifically from this study from Green et al. 621 patients were randomized to daily um, versus discretionary use. In other words, they couldn't ethically say, well, don't ever use sunscreen. But they kind of left it to them to say, well, do whatever you normally do, which for most of these people was they didn't use it. And the other half of the study, 
daily, you know, every day, every day, be sure and use sunscreen. And they did this for 14 years. So this is a good long study. There were 11 melanoma in the daily group and 22 double in the discretionary group, which is a highly significant rate, which suggests that daily sunscreen use reduces the incidence of melanoma. So it seems sunscreens are a good idea. So what's the big deal? Well, four things have been raised. Oxybenzone, nanoparticles, retinal palmitate, and vitamin D deficiency. So let's talk about the first one, oxybenzone. Oxybenzone is a UVB sunscreen. You know, sunscreens are a mixture of chemicals. They're not just a single chemical. So they have what are called filters in them, UVA filters and UVB filters. And oxybenzone is a very, very common UVB filter. It's in most products. If you look on the back, it's got oxybenzone in it. It's not just in sunscreens, but it's also used in foods and cosmetics to prevent um, oxidation, UV-induced oxidation. <coughs> so you've been eating it. Not only have you been rubbing it on your skin for sunscreen, but you've uh, been consuming it um, from foods for years. So it's been widely used. It's probably the number one product that's been used um, in, for, well, sun protection, and as I said, in cosmetics and food over the last 40 years. When you look at it on a piece of paper, if you draw the structure of oxybenzone, it kind of looks like estrogen. It's similar in structure to, steroid, to the steroid hormone estrogen. The significance of that is unclear. And furthermore, if you do very, very sensitive um, testing of people's urine, and I mean really sensitive, to detect incredibly small amounts, you can detect oxybenzone in people's urine. And what that means is they must be absorbing a little bit of this into their body. So you're absorbing a little bit of something that looks like estrogen. So is that good or bad? Well, an in vivo biologic effect was first reported in 2001 that there were effects on the uterus in rats after oral oxybenzone. So they're not rubbing sunscreen on them. They're feeding them large amounts to this, and it affected their uterus. So Similarly, estrogenic effects have been shown on cultured, so in tissue culture, where you can just add the chemical right to the liquid, to the tissue culture liquid, effects on um, human breast cancer cells were shown. So the rats were given 1,525 milligrams per kilogram a day for four days. The estrogenic effect of this oral dose, which is a huge dose, I mean much more than you would ever get from putting on sunscreen, um, was only one one millionth that of estradiol which was their control. Uh, and Lim, um, in the Archives of Dermatology, calculated that the amount of topical sunscreen needed to obtain an equivalent dose, you know, what the rats were getting by mouth, you would have to use a 6% um, formulation, the face, neck, hands, and arms, for 277 years. So, no, you're not really absorbing a lot of this into your body. Uh, in 2004, Jan and his colleagues showed there was no real difference in sex hormone levels after one week of 100% um, uh, benzo, benzo benzoxy, oxybenzone um, sunscreen use at two milligrams per square centimeter. And oxybenzone has been on the market for over 40 years, and no known cases of human endocrine effects have been detected. So nonetheless, the American Association of Pediatrics um, in March 2011 wrote, P 
People may wish to avoid using sunscreens that contain oxybenzone, which may have weak estrogenic effects when absorbed through the skin. So, you know, that's a pretty reputable organization. Um, you know, the Environmental Working Group is not a reputable organization, but the American Academy of Pediatrics is. So they're warning people about this sunscreen, should they have made that warning. Um, and the answer is probably not. It's probably not absorbed into your body enough to make a mat, to make a difference, and it's never been observed that it does make a difference. Now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about nanoparticles. Nano means 10 to the ninth, literally. So what does a 10 to the ninth minus ninth particle mean? Well, you're referring to meters. So you're referring to a particle that's in the 10 to the minus ninth meter size range. And it's generally accepted that nanoparticles refers to particles that are less than 100 nanometers in diameter. However, there is no precise FDA definition. So, you know, if a product says nanoparticles on it, that it's not really clear that they have the, what that really means. Um, how many of you use zinc and titanium for sunscreen? Okay, yeah, that's, they're popular. You know, people like them. They're, they're um, non-organic. Um, they don't look like estrogen. Um, you know, they're in the mineral family. Um, people call them natural. When they say natural sunscreens, that's what they mean. They mean zinc and titanium because they exist in nature. Um, and the problem with them, though, is that they're sunblocks, not sunscreens. So they work by reflecting the ultraviolet light back into the environment. Well, they also reflect visible light back into the environment. So what color are they? White. And so you remember the lifeguard with the white paste on their nose? That's zinc oxide. So you know, the original formulations of zinc oxide and titanium dioxide were cosmetically unacceptable because they would, they would make you look white and chalky. So by making the particles smaller and smaller, it starts to allow more regular light to filter through um, while still reflecting back the ultraviolet light. So nanosizing increases absorption or increases reflection and decreases um, reflection of visible light and makes the product more cosmetically acceptable. The FDA has not really regulated the meaning and use of nanoparticles, but there's zinc and titanium products on the market now where the size of the individual particles is less than 100, uh, less than 100 nanometers in diameter. Uh, in 1997, a study was done in which plasmid DNA, plasmids are little extracellular circles of DNA that infect um, bacteria. Plasmid DNA was exposed to titanium dioxide and then simulated sunlight and oxygen-free radicals um, were generated that could, could have the ability to cause DNA strand breaks. And similarly, zinc oxide has been shown to produce Nixon strand breaks in plasmid DNA, again, in vitro. So that means in a test tube, not in a real person. Let's see if this is, there we go. Uh, Yim demonstrated nano-sized titanium dioxide with different size and crystal forms. The nanoparticles come in two crystalline forms, what's called anatase and rutile, um, that they both forms were phototoxic in vitro with the rutile form less toxic, and the smaller the particle size, the higher the damage. In other words, the smaller you made them, the more DNA damage you saw through oxygen-free radicals. These studies are all in vitro and have no meaning whatsoever if the nanoparticles cannot penetrate the stratum corneum and enter epidermal cells. In other words, if they can't get into your cells, it doesn't count. 
So multiple studies have shown that even under exaggerated conditions, neither nano-sized titanium dioxide nor zinc oxide can penetrate beyond the stratum corneum. So I'll say that again, this is a very important slide. Multiple studies have looked at this issue. Can these products penetrate the stratum corneum, get inside your epidermal cells where they could cause trouble? And the answer is no. And here's an example. Neither titanium nor zinc penetrated intact skin past the stratum corneum. When they tried needle puncturing the skin, um, and have, all, have you all ever seen those little tines, those little needle tines to increase penetration of products? Um, 3M company makes one. Have anybody ever seen them? It's called microneedling. Anyway, microneedling did not allow skin penetration. So even microneedling didn't increase. It still couldn't get past the stratum corneum. And in this study, titanium oxide, dioxide was applied to intact, but also damaged, irradiated, and damaged and irradiated pig skin for 24 hours, and no absorption past the stratum corneum was seen in any group. So I think it's safe to conclude that the public health benefits of nanosized sunblocks, because it makes it so much more palatable and so much more useful, outweighs any potential or theoretic risk. And there's no reason for you to be afraid of using zinc or titanium um, products. Retinal palmitate. This was the one that the Environmental Working Group really got all lathered up over. Retinal palmitates in the um, Retin-A pathway. So have you all used Retin-A? How many of you prescribe Retin-A to patients all the time, right? Um, it's a great product. I'm a big believer in it. Um, retinal palmitate's a precursor of um, retinoic acid. Retinoic acid or tretinoin is retin-A. Um, so retinal palmitate is a storage form of retin-A, of vitamin A, retinol, an essential and endogenous nutrient. Upon demand, retinol palmitate and retinol converted to active retinoic acids. And the retinoic acids are what actually work on your cells. Um, and they're used in prescription products and over-the-counter drugs, as well as in food additives. So your patients are exposed to these all the time, all these vitamin A derivatives. So this is kind of a busy cartoon, but I just wanted to show you the important part. Let's see if I can figure out how to get the laser pointer to work. Um, here's retinoic acid, so that's Retin-A, and it goes through retinaldehyde. Retinaldehyde's an over-the-counter product, so there's cosmetics that contain retinaldehyde. And then retinol is also an over-the-counter product. There are a lot of cosmetics that contain retinol. And then retinol palmitates way out here. So retinol palmitate goes to retinol, goes to retinaldehyde, and then retin-A, which is the active ingredient. Retin-A is a prescription product. These are not. Retinol palmitate, from 2002 to 2009, the FDA conducted eight in vitro studies. Four of these showed that the combination of retinol palmitate and UVA radiation generated reactive oxygen species, so oxygen-free radicals. Uh, four additional studies showed the combination to be mutagenic to mouse lymphoma cells. So this is in vitro, this is in tissue culture. But it is a little alarming. In real life, non-enzymatic, vitamin A itself, vitamin C, vitamin E, and enzymatic antioxidants such as superoxide dismutase work together in concert to quickly eliminate oxygen-free radicals. So oxygen-free radicals don't persist long in your cells. Um, in isolation, all non-enzymatic antioxidants are quickly depleted and become pro-oxidative when challenged. And that's just saying when you do these in vitro studies, you kind of negate your natural protection. Um, in 
again, 2002 to 2009, three studies with um, SKH1 mice were performed. All three had retinal palmitate applied to the mice. One third of the mice received ultraviolet light, and none showed any increase in tumors. So if these oxygen-free radicals are being produced, they're not increasing the frequency of any kind of cancer in these mice. And the largest study was done by the National Toxicology Lab, National Toxicology Program. Um, it's uh, unpublished, but the data is available online and can be found summarized by Henry Lim in the November 2010 JAD. 574 of these SKH1 mice were randomized to receive control vehicle, 0.1% retinal palmitate, 0.5% retinal palmitate, and then solar simulation at um, 0 or 6.75 millijoules per square centimeter or up to 13.7 millijoules per square centimeter five times a week for 40 weeks. <clears throat> and there was no evidence to support photocarcinogenic effect of retinal palmitate. In other words, um, the mice receiving retinal palmitate did not develop more skin cancers than the mice that were receiving vehicle control. So there's no human studies. Now, topical retinoids, you know, you, when I ask you how many of you prescribe Retin-A or maybe some cosmetic products that have retinol in it, um, you know, a lot of hands went up. Um, topical retinoids have been used for over 40 years, and there's no clinical data or trends to indicate an increased risk for photocarcinogenicity. So people with acne who are using Retin-A are not getting more skin cancers on their face. It's not happening. We're not seeing it. Uh, and what do we use for organ transplant patients? They're very, very high risk for skin cancer. What do you give them? Soriotane. You give them soriotane. What's soriotane? Retinoid. So you don't even give them topical retinoids. You give them systemic retinoids to lower the incidence of skin cancer. And it's beyond question that soriotane and Accutane both work to lower the incidence of skin cancer in very high-risk individuals, such as organ transplant patients or people with basal cell nevus syndrome. So in summary, there's no current animal or human studies to suggest that retinol palmitate in sunscreens is photocarcinogenic, so I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, and then the last thing we're going to talk about is vitamin D. So we all in the dermatology world, you know, are very focused on skin cancer, and this is our sun protection message. This sun protection message really hasn't changed in 30 years. Basically, avoidance of the sun from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. You know, some of you may say 3 p.m. That's okay. I'm going to say a little later. Seeking shade when outdoors, wear a broad-brimmed hat and sun protective clothing, avoid indoor tanning, <clears throat> and the regular use of sunscreens or sunblocks by all people at all times. That's, that's what we recommend, basically, right? That's what your office says. That's what those little brochures in the lobby, you know, sun protection all say. So what about vitamin D? Have, by the way, has anybody had patients ask them about this? Okay, so let me tell you what to tell them. So it turns out that ultraviolet light also induces the production of vitamin D in the skin. So that's a fact. So you start from cholesterol, actually. 7-dehydrocholesterol is the precursor. Um, cholesterol is converted <coughs> ultimately to vitamin D. And the first step occurs in the skin under the influence of UVB. Not UVA, UVB. So UVB converts 7-dehydrocholesterol to pre-vitamin D3. And then... Pre-vitamin D3 is hydroxylated in the kidneys to 25-hydroxyvitamin D3, and then it's hydroxylated again in the liver to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3, which is the active ingredient. That's the, the chemical that does something. The circulating form is 25-hydroxy. So if you send someone for a blood test, anybody ever send their patient for blood test, vitamin D levels? 
Your patients want to know what their vitamin D level is. They're going to get 25-hydroxy is what they're going to get tested. And we're going to talk about these blood levels and what a huge problem this has become. So some physicians, especially those in the internal medicine community, we all agree that vitamin D is essential for calcium homeostasis and bone health. You know, that's beyond question. Everybody agrees on that. But there are some physicians, especially in the internal medicine community, who feel there are benefits of vitamin D beyond bone health and recommend some intentional UV exposure to raise vitamin D levels that have been dangerously lowered by obsessive sun avoidance and obsessive sunscreen use. And whose fault is that? All the people, all the people sitting in the room here. Um, so that's, that's what they say. And they base these on what are called epidemic, um, geographic studies, basically, that if you look at the incidence of some diseases um, plotted versus um, latitude, you'll see that the incidence of some diseases decreases as you go south. That's a fact. So the incidence of breast cancer is lower in Mexico than it is in Seattle. It is. Um, why that should be, I have the faintest idea, and I don't think anybody else knows. So these, oh, they call them ecologic studies. These, a lot of these ecologic studies of looking at disease incidence on north to south gradients. And there does seem to be a difference in a number of diseases. So a review article on this topic was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in July 2007, and it was entitled Vitamin D Deficiency. And it was written by a guy named Michael Holick, who is a professor at Boston University, who's absolutely obsessed with this issue. Do any of you know who Linus Pauling was? I'm really dating myself here, only, you know, remembering Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling won two Nobel Prizes. He won one for chemistry and one for peace. He's the one who described the um, helical structure of protein. He almost described the helical, once they figured out the helical structure of protein, they figured out DNA was a helix. So the helical structure of DNA is really because of Linus Pauling. And he was working on it as well. Unfortunately, he thought it was a triple helix, and Watson and Crick beat him to it with a double helix. But he figured out that that's how it was self-replicating, that that's how it worked. Um, and Linus Pauling, at the end of his life, became obsessed with vitamin C, absolutely obsessed. The vitamin C cured cancer and cured the common cold. Now, nobody thinks that anymore, and Linus Pauling was wrong. Well, the new Linus Pauling is Michael Holick, who's in Boston, who's convinced that vitamin D does everything, that it's magic. Um, and he lists in this article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine a whole list of health benefits that vitamin D provides, elevated vitamin D, very elevated vitamin D, that vitamin D provides beyond bone health and calcium homeostasis, including lower breast cancer, colon cancer, melanoma, schizophrenia, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. I mean, you know, this whole list of stuff that if you could bang your vitamin D levels up that you wouldn't get, multiple sclerosis. It's quite a list. And he mentions he thinks an estimated 1 billion people worldwide are vitamin D deficient. And he has stated on his webpage that 40 to 60% of the US adult population is vitamin D deficient, at least in the wintertime. So he gives a long list in this article of all the causes of what could make vitamin D deficiency. And the first cause at the top of the list in the New England Journal of Medicine is sunscreen use. So Dr. Holick feels people, you know, that basal cell and squamous cell are trivial diseases. He doesn't deny that sun causes them. He just feels they're trivial. And um, that you should encourage people to throw their sunscreen away and go to the beach. So 
let's kind of think this through. The first thing we should talk about, he's saying that everybody's deficient, that everybody in this room, that half of you are low on vitamin D. Well, what do we mean by normal? I mean, how, if you were the head of LabCorp Quest, how would you decide what a normal vitamin D level is? Well, what I would do is I would take a big group of people who appear to be healthy, measure their vitamin D levels, so you all look pretty healthy. I'd measure all your vitamin D levels at whatever number we came up with, whatever range. <coughs> that's normal. And that's what people did. I mentioned earlier 25-hydroxy, when you send someone for a blood test, 25-hydroxy is a circulating form. Uh, and that's what's going to be measured. And in, until the very recent past, normal was 15 nanograms per milliliter was normal. So anything, you know, 15 nanograms and above, you're okay. You don't have to worry about it. And they did studies in the 1990s, so which has been a while now, in the 1990s in Australia, looking at people who rigorously used, I mean, they really used sunscreen. They did this on xeroderma pigmentosum patients. They never go outside. You know, they always use sunscreen. And they kept their vitamin D levels above 15 nanograms per milliliter. So the thought was always, sunscreens don't lower people's vitamin D's levels. You don't have to worry about it. So Dr. Michael Holick, as I said, he's certainly one of the most outspoken experts on vitamin D. He's a passionate advocate of elevated levels for optimal health. And here's the rub. Optimal is not the same as normal. You know, so if I say a normal vitamin D level, that's not a holic optimal vitamin D level. So a holic optimal, first he said it was 20 nanograms per milliliter. Then he said it was 30. Now he says it's 40. I just heard a lecture the other day where they said it was 50. So, you know, the, this is like a moving target. And then the really interesting thing is, who's the country's expert on vitamin D? Michael Holick. So who do you think Quest and LabCorp respond to? Michael Holick. So that young lady back there in the back, she said she sent someone to a vi for a vitamin D level. Well, if the lab takes Michael Holick's numbers as normal, your patient's gonna come back vitamin D deficient. So LabCorp, which is the biggest lab company in the country, um, citing Dr. They cite Dr. Holick, and I'm sorry, it's misspelled. They cite Dr. Holick on the sheet. When you order vitamin D level, it says on the sheet that my M. Holick. And they describe it as the lower limit for optimal health to be 32 nanograms. Now, why 32? Not, why not 30, 20, or 40? I don't know where they got 32. But they're, they're, they've elevated it from 15 to 32. That's more than double. So they've more than doubled what's considered an okay vitamin D level. So there's no longer agreement on the normal level, and depending on what lab you use, your patient may or may not be told they're vitamin D deficient. So if you use the wrong lab, your patient's gonna get a result back saying they're vitamin D deficient. And actually, this lab has been ordered so much in the past few years that the insurance companies are refusing to pay for it. <coughs> because everybody thinks they're vitamin D deficient, and they're all getting tested. So, and these very high holic levels, you know, 50 nanograms, I mean, that's really high. 50 nanograms per milliliter, indeed, might be hard to obtain casually just from a regular diet without making some conscious effort, either oral supplementation, taking vitamin D pills, or intentional tanning, going to tanning parlors or going to the beach. Now, as a matter of public health policy, to tell people to go to the beach is that a very realistic option in Chicago in January? No, 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 it's not, very, it's not a realistic health 
recommendation. If you're the Surgeon General of the United States and you say, well, I think everybody should go to the beach for at least 30 minutes a week because you'll make vitamin D, that's absurd for half the country for half the year. So on the other, do you think Medicare would pay for indoor tanning? Because that would work. You know, it's UVB. Um, that'll be probably a cold day in hell before Medicare pays for indoor tanning. And who do you think Dr. Holick works for? The Indoor Tanning Association. So he takes all his research funding from the indoor tanning people. So they would love nothing more than to say that indoor tanning is healthy for you, that you make vitamin D. They are prevented by the FDA from saying that right now, but trust me, they would love, nothing would make them happier than to have television commercials on saying, you must come for indoor tanning so you won't get breast cancer. So here's a question that we should ask ourselves. Yeah, uh, we'll hold questions to the end if that's okay. Um, can we achieve adequate vitamin D levels from diet alone? I mean, is Dr. Holick right? Do you have to go to the tanning parlor? That, that's his basic message. You know, do you have, or if you lived in Florida, you could go to the beach. If you lived in Chicago, you would have to go to a tanning parlor. Uh, can we do this through diet alone? If your patients, the one who got the blood test and it came back low and they want to elevate their vitamin D level, can you advise them on diet? Is there a way to do this so that they would have very high vitamin D levels? And the answer is yes, but we need to adjust a little bit on their diet. So for many years, you know on, the, on cereal boxes it always says the RDA, Recommended Daily Allowance, and that comes from the Institute of Medicine. And this was for many years what was recommended for vitamin D intake orally. 200 international units for children and adults up to 50, which is most of the population. And then as you get older, you don't make it as well, and so they need more orally. So adults 50 to 70, 400 international units, and adults over 70, 600 international units. And these are oral sources of vitamin D, and you can see a glass of milk has 100 international units. Well, if you're a little kid, you're gonna drink two glasses of milk a day, boom, you got your 200 international units. So historically, it was very easy to get keep your vitamin D levels normal, never go outside. I mentioned this earlier, patients with xeroderma pigmentosum, you know, that's a special photosensitivity disease. Um, they, they maintain normal levels through diet alone. An egg yolk has 50, salmon 500 international units, so oily fish particularly. It's in mushrooms, it's in all kinds of things. And the typical multivitamin has 400 international units. These levels, however, you know, if I told you that Dr. Holick wants you up at 50 nanograms per milliliter, suddenly, now you're talking about drinking 10 glasses of milk a day, which is gonna be a little more difficult. So the RDA for vitamin D was last set in 1997. In November 2010, the Institute of Medicine released an updated dietary reference intake for vitamin D and calcium. And I'm gonna to read to you from that report. Quote, the committee assessed more than 1,000 studies and reports and listened to testimony from scientists, including Dr. Holick, and stakeholders before making its conclusions. National surveys showed that the average blood levels of vitamin D are above 20 nanograms per milliliter that the Institute of Medicine Committee found to be the level that is needed for good bone health for practically all individuals. So to summarize that, 20 is the number. So when you send someone for a blood test and it comes back low with 40 being normal, that's not correct. Um, they went on to say, the number of people with vitamin D deficiency in North America may be 
may be overestimated because many laboratories appearing to be using cut points that are much higher than the committee suggests is appropriate. So remember when someone comes in and says, I'm vitamin D deficiency, it's, the number's 20. It's not 30, it's not 40, it's not 50. Quote, this thorough review found that information about the health benefits beyond bone health, <coughs> benefits often reported in the media, were from studies that provided often mixed and inconclusive results and could not be considered reliable. So all these studies about vitamin D preventing breast cancer and preventing colon cancer and were considered unreliable by this committee, and I would have to agree to them. They're all based on latitude. None of them directly show intervention matters. Intervention would be taking a patient, having them go to the tanning parlor every day, get their vitamin D levels up, and show that they don't get cancer. That study has not been done, or if it has been done, it didn't work that interventional studies, interventional studies have mostly been oral, giving people oral supplementation. There was a very large one on breast cancer. Nothing happened. The incidence of breast cancer did not go down when you gave oral supplementation of vitamin D for a decade or more. So they did, however, change the RDA. So this is now the current RDA for vitamin D. And you can see it's been raised to 600 international units, <clears throat> which is going to require a little effort now because now we're up to six glasses of milk, not two glasses of milk. Um, or you could take, of course, vitamin D supplementation, and the vitamin D pills are generally 1,000 international units. Um, so uh, if you want to elevate your vitamin D levels, the kind of things you could do is eat more oily fish, eat more salmon, make that effort, or take oral supplementation. So if your patients are asking you about it, recommend that they specifically take 1,000 international units a day. So that's what they sell in all the stores, 1,000 units of vitamin D a day. Um, according to the Institute of Medicine, the maximum safe dietary intake is 4,000 international units a day. Quote, very high levels of vitamin D, above 10,000 international units per day, are known to cause kidney and tissue damage. And I might point out Dr. Holick is advocating 40,000 units a day. So he's advocating huge doses. Um, that cause renal calcifications and cardiac calcifications um, that are a very bad idea. So just tell your patients 1,000 units a day, that'll be just fine. And so in summary, despite theoretic concerns, the health benefits of regular sunscreen use as currently formulated seem safe and advisable. And I would keep telling all your patients, keep using sunscreen daily. Now, they asked me to come up with a pearl, with a sunscreen pearl. And do you all know how they measure the SPF factor? Anybody know? What the hell, what the hell is that number, SPF? What the hell does that mean? SPF stands for sun protection factor, and it refers to time to sunburn. So what they do is they, they take a solar simulator, and they shine it on your back, and they measure how long it takes you to sunburn. And for someone like me, just say 30 minutes. I'm pretty fair-skinned, so I'm going to sunburn in 30 minutes. <clears throat> then they put a cream on, and they measure again, and now it takes an hour. That's twice as long. That would be an SPF of two. So it's the ratio of protected to unprotected is what SPF is. So if it took eight hours for me, so I'm 30 minutes unprotected, and I'm eight hours with brand X, that's an SPF of 16. There's not eight hours of noontime sun. It's not possible. So SPF 15 is fine. So for years, the AAD said SPF 
15 or greater. That was the recommendation. Does anybody know what the recommendation is today? 30. 30. Why did they raise it? Why did they double it? Here's the pearl. When they do the studies in the lab to measure SPF factor, they apply the cream at two grams per square centimeter. That's how much cream they're putting on the skin. That's really a lot, two grams per square centimeter. And then they've done studies where they give people a tube of sunscreen and they say, well, put this on. And they wanna see you know, how much do people really put on in real life. And the answer is in real life, people put on one milligram to 0.5 milligrams per square centimeter. So they put on one half to one quarter of what they should have put on. If you only put on one half the amount you should have put on, instead of being SPF 15, it's gonna be SPF 7.5. You're gonna cut it in half. It's a linear relationship. So as you cut the amount you put on, you cut the SPF. So the reason the AAD made it SPF 30 was because they figured you only put on half as much as you're supposed to. So if you only put on half as much as you're supposed to, you're actually gonna end up with SPF 15. So that's why they changed it. Um, and with that, that's all I have to say about sunscreens. And thank you for your attention.